Hello, and welcome back to the Guns on Pegs podcast. My name is George Brown, and I'm the editor at Guns on Pegs. I am, as usual, joined by Chris Horn, CEO of ITAP Group. Chris, you're looking tanned. You've been on holiday. Don't lie, George. This is I go a slight shade of pink when I go on holiday, and then it goes <laughs> or peels off in about three days. <laughs> Are you feeling relaxed, though? Oh, it was lovely. As lovely as you know, uh, having a holiday with small children can be. <laughs> so yes. this is our first proper like sun holiday. And uh, I didn't even take a book, which was a weird feeling. Uh, I actually forgot it, but there was no chance I was going to read a page of it anyway. But it was lovely. Uh, having a daughter there on, on a late month old was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Um, and um, how's things going your side? Get, actually, hold on. After the last pod, give us an update on um, the pheasant, phantom, bantam, cockerel situation in the garden. The big news is that the um, the particularly lovelorn pheasant uh, who came every day and stood on top of the hen house looking miserable has found a proper girlfriend. He's got a hen pheasant in tow. Um, and they're now pretty much resident in the garden. They're there... Uh, four or five times a day. Um, he's got incredibly territorial. There's another cock pheasant tried to sort of sneak in the other day and he properly went for him. Um, so uh, the, the saga continues. I'm pretty certain that they're nesting in the back paddock somewhere um, or about to. Um, so I'm going to keep an eye out and hopefully... I mean, I, my biggest fear is that because we're right by the railway line here that the fox is just used as a sort of motorway. I'm pretty mm. worried for the hen, but um, we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah. Actually, we've had a couple of um, mallard nesting in the field. And I know, I see the fox doing the tracks exactly where they nest, but they're still there and they've got away with it so far. And I just, I hope to God that we don't see a whole load of little ducklings and then the next day, none. It just, <laughs> I yes. quite like it to happen at this stage rather than that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, our guest knows more than many about the wild, the rearing and breeding of, of wild birds. So, Chris, why don't you tell us who's with us today? I will. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's exactly you would have seen that saga I've just outlined many times. Um, so our guest today is an arable farmer and conservationist in Gloucestershire, mm -hmm. farming over 4000 acres with more than one eye on wildlife, it has to be said, and, and habitat restoration, low impact farming practice practices and so on um he and his team were the recipients of the purdy gold award for the work that he what they've carried out with regards to gray partridge conservation at the great lem hill estate uh so really looking forward to hearing about this and the huge passion that he has for it a really warm welcome to george ponsonby hi thank you good to have you with us it's great to have you with us thanks very much good to be here and um george we've been trying to fix this up for a for a month or so now but uh because we had to do it today because you've just come back from holiday as well, haven't you? I've had a week's fishing up in the Peak District, yes. So it's the best week's holiday of the year. Yeah. <laughs> and how, how did it end up? Well, it's quite hard work catching a, a, a wild brown trout on a dry fly at uh, the end of April. Uh, but I caught eight, I think, in four or Lovely. five days. So um, everyone is a, is a huge thrill. You mm. can sheet if you want to, by putting on a nymph, and then it's very easy. But um, I like the challenge, try and catch one on a dry fly if I possibly can. Yes, I'm with you on that. I don't fish enough, but I've if there's a chance to use a dry fly, 
much prefer it. I don't know what it is about it, but yeah. No, it's it's it's, it's, the, it's worth driving all that way just to catch one. It's the most Brilliant. enormous thrill. Yeah. This is obviously something you do every year. Yes, yes, I go. Um, I go the last week of April, which is just just about when I'm ready for a break after all the spring drilling and what have you. And then I go. The, I go exactly the same place as the first week of June when the fishing is obviously um, at its very best. And uh, so that that's uh, although the two holidays are very close together, those are my two holidays, the best holidays of the year. Yes, yeah. <laughs> wonderful. And so, did you get any hatches this year, or were they just speculative dry fly casts? Well, they were spe- no. They you're right. They were speculative dry uh, dry fly casts. Although there was a little bit of rising going on, but um, so you know, if I if I cast at a rising fish, um, I don't think that was the one I actually caught. So um, it's it's <laughs> it's probably more luck than good judgment. <laughs> well, I mean that's how this podcast exists anyway. So um, uh, very fitting. Um, right, I think we will press on, um, and I am going to ask George, what's that you're drinking? Well, I'm not a not a big drinker. I drink a, a little bit of white wine sometimes. I don't particularly like champagne, and I never drink spirits. But uh, my favourite drink is a very cold glass of beer. And uh, my favourite of all favourites is brew down in um, the West Country by a brewery called Otter, the Otter Brewery. And they have a small range, and my favourite of their range is called Otter Head. And I reckon it is about the most thirst-quenching drink you can come across. Um, it's quite strong. It tastes absolutely delicious. And somebody once said of it, it slips down your throat like a band of music, <laughs> which is, which is, a, which lovely is a lovely phrase. way of putting it. And um, it's my favourite tipple on a, if we're, you know, if it's a hot day shooting, come in for lunch and... Uh, a glass, a cold glass of Otterhead is 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 it just hits the right spot, as indeed it does if uh, Tarquin and I are out pigeon decoying on a warm summer's day. I have my little table by my <laughs> seat, and on there would be a bottle of a bottle of Otterhead. So that's my favourite tipple. Lovely. I feel like somebody else has had something from the Otter Brewery before, haven't they? Come on. I don't. I don't recognise it. So I've just googled it. Five point eight percent. So it's fairly fairly punchy ale. Is it an ale? Yes. It is, yeah. Yes, it's actually also brewed from a particular variety of barley, which we very often grow on the farm. So I have a vested interest. Ah. Oh, very, yeah. Yeah, very, yeah. I must say, it's one of the best reviews for a beer I've heard in a long time. Uh, it's got me going. So I've, 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 I've opened it in a tab here. Oh, I shall be purchasing. No, I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah, there was one occasion when... Um, so I, I, I very often keep a few bottles in the fridge in my farm office. And if some kind of chap comes and fixes the combine on a hot day, middle of harvest, I'll probably, you know, if I'm there at the right time, I'll give him a bottle of beer and uh, tell him, you know, it's made from some of our own barley, so, uh, so which they enjoy. And then, uh, anyway, there was one occasion several years ago when I was loading a lorry of barley myself, uh, which involved quite a lot of sweeping and shoveling. It was a very hot day and I got very thirsty and I promised myself that once this was all over, I'd get back to the office and I'd prize open a bottle of Otterhead. And um, anyway, when I got back to the office, I couldn't find a bottle opener. So I went down to the workshop and I managed to get the top off with a pair of very large pair of Stilsons. <laughs> and uh, I don't think the bottles bottle of all head are open with a, with a pair of Stilsons very often. And then I put my feet up and drank it. And I hadn't had anything to eat for a very long time. It went straight to my head. And I, I don't think I was fit to drive. <laughs> but, it's, but it's some lovely stuff. Yeah, very nice. And Chris, have you brought something exotic back from your holiday? 
I was in Tenerife and I did actually have some local wine, which actually was all right. Uh, but I didn't bring anything back. Um, I have today got with me something that I've been sent in or we've been sent in because it says Chris and George, but I've got the bottle, George. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, nothing new. Uh, nothing new. <laughs> um, and uh, it says Chris and George. It's from a chap called Anthony who runs uh, the Ballyvalan house spirits company and you'll recognize this because it's the birther's revenge which peter mackie had on the Uh, podcast uh in the end of last series yes um yeah so uh birther's revenge irish small batch slow gin which is really lovely it's actually um so it's quite dry well what do I know about these things? But it seems quite dry uh, compared to the sort of, you know, the standard run of the mill slow gins that you get when you, especially like a, a, a Gordon slow gin. Most people have tasted that. Uh, this is better. Um, so <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, but it's lovely. So thank you very much for Ant- to Anthony. Bertha's Revenge. If you see it, grab some. Right, shall do. I'll look forward to trying some. Yeah, <laughs> that requires me to bring it into the office or something, George, doesn't it? <laughs> it does a bit, yeah. Hey, maybe I could bring it to the cricket on... Th- Are we allowed to take booze to the cricket on Thursday? It depends if you hide it in your sock or not. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, what are you drinking? Well, so I am, as usual, on uh, a Scotch whiskey. Um, it's from my favourite distillery, Abelau, but instead of being one of the 12-year-olds, which is sort of my everyday drinker, um, I've got something that's got a name in Gaelic that I can't pronounce, um, but it's um, it's... Uh, it translates to rare cask um and it's uh matured in american and sherry oak um and uh bottled at 48 percent. so i'm gonna be taking it fairly steady today that's that's quite strong um can you have a go please at pronouncing the name that you can't pronounce uh i think it's probably something like cask anam something like that does do, do you feel enlightened now <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping for something just yeah, something more than that, but okay. <laughs> no, that's that's what all you're getting, Fair I'm enough. afraid. All you're getting. <laughs> it's been a while since we had one of your accent, uh whose bird is it anyways? We need some more of those actually. I enjoyed uh, well, them. We could get another South African or Australian on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If you're an Australian or a South African, send us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com and listen to me butcher your accent. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which um george it's time for our first bit of listener correspondence um so uh what we do is we ask our listeners in the segment called whose bird is it anyway to send in their shooting dilemmas and questions and queries and we do our level best to resolve those queries and work out who is in the right or the wrong this one uh comes from somebody who emailed pod at gunsonpegs.com who i have decided to call diogenes and he has written Last season, a very good friend of mine shot a brace of woodcock on our annual walked-up day in the Cotswolds. Both birds were shot with a single barrel, but 30 seconds apart, and the gun was broken between shots. It was impressive shooting, and he cooked the birds the following day for everyone to enjoy. However, he soon got wind of the prestigious Woodcock Club, and rather likes the idea of attending their annual dinner at the Savile Club. The gun in question has asked me and another friend to act as witnesses for his application to become a member, in the knowledge that the brace was not a true left and right. 
Over the past few months, I've ignored this request, as have others in the group. But over a quiet few pints to discuss shooting plans for next season, we were asked once again if we would witness the application. Do I hold firm and refuse this shameless request, or should I just be a good mate and allow my friend his big night out? (laughs) Oh, God. We'd probably better just explain what the Woodcock Club is, hadn't we? Go on, you go. Well, I'm not entirely familiar with it, but I think it's a club uh, for people who can prove that they have had a left and a and right on Woodcock. Is that right? And I think yep. there's a tie yep. and uh, evidently an, an and, annual and blowout at the Savile Club. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that one of our colleagues is a member? Uh, is Frank? Maybe. He, yeah, possibly. Uh, guess, George, are, are you a member of the Woodcock Club? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. No, but, uh, but I think you're right. I think that's what it is. Right and left of Woodcock. Yeah. And, witnessed. It, and it's a shooting times thing, isn't it? It's originally is shooting it? times. Yeah. Yeah. So pa- Patrick, our friend Patrick Galbraith, uh, hosts, well, hosts it each year at the moment. Um, so, okay. The important point here is I'd like to start with uh, George Ponsonby. What's your definition of a left and right in your eyes? Well, we can't break the gun. And it, it, so it's, it's, it's left and right, but two barrels doesn't have to be left shoulder, right shoulder. It's just left, left barrel, right barrel, two, ba- two birds, no gun broken. Well, none, I, 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 I would stand to be corrected, but maybe it's got to be the same gun mount as well. Yeah. So you've just got to go from one to the other. But yeah. strictly speaking, I, I suspect it's probably you can't break the gun. Yeah, definitely can't. I agree. Definitely can't break the gun. <laughs> um, well, especially if you've reloaded. Yes, exactly. I think if you're shooting grouse or partridges, it's probably the same gun mount as well. Isn't same, it? same continuous swing. Yeah, yeah. bang, bird. bang. Yeah. 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 So so actually shooting a bird with the first barrel off your left shoulder, switching to the right shoulder to, to get a bird going over your right side and shooting that. I've always kind of wondered, is that more impressive than a bang, bang off the same swing? But anyway, we're getting to the nuances of left yeah. and right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I've never even heard of that. <laughs> I don't, yeah, anyway, <laughs> um, the point is, uh, and, and George, you're uh, you you're you're of the same opinion right no gun no gun break yeah yeah for sure yeah, i would feel for a sure. fraud I, I i i don't think i'd try and join the club unless i it was a genuine right and left okay you'll get you'll get rumbled <laughs> so, so i was only i'm only asking questions to deduce where we stand on this guy this this person's opinion here of asking him to to witness his application to the woodcock club which clearly we all disagree with yeah i think so you'll have to have another go it's an interesting one, though, isn't it? Because as a mate, do you then say, listen, I know that it'd be great for you to go to the Savile Club, but you didn't meet the criteria and therefore in all conscience, I can't support your claim? Or do you, and, and that's the, where the quandary is, isn't it? Like you have to say no or you have to say yes. So if he's saying yes, he's saying, look, I know that he didn't meet the criteria, but I don't want to upset my friend so i'm gonna support his claim and that's the that's the real question we're being asked to to resolve isn't it hold on hold on hold on i've got an idea um this guy's in a quandary which is why he's emailed us what i will do is message patrick galbraith now to say you're gonna get an application when you see this email address from this witness refuse it because i know it to be false (laughs) and then it's not his fault it's my fault and i don't care (laughs) 
I, I like that. Yeah, I think that's good. <laughs> but the thing is, if this is one of his real, if he's actually a good mate, surely you could just say, no way, I'm not witnessing that. Or you witness it and then give him a hard time about it for the next 30 years. Like knowing you're a fraud, a living fraud yeah. every day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the other members, other members would be disappointed. Yeah. I, yes, if they knew, they would be, wouldn't they? That's yeah. a very good point. There's got to be a few of these people in the club already, isn't there? There's got to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like saying you've scored a century when you've only got 90. Yeah. No, no, it's no different, is it? In this case, it's more like getting 60, isn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's, it's not even close. Um, I think that's unanimous decision then. Tell him no. I think so. Yeah, I prayed so. Yeah, except... I'm wondering whether we just say to him, don't tell him no, tell him you'll do it, and then it get rejected, because I think that would be funny, and I'll make sure that happens. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, so if you decide to go with Chris's option, make sure you send us a follow-up email and let us know so that we can warn the club committee of what's about to happen. Yeah, so I only know this person as Diogenes. If I say Diogenes, it's not going to get me very far. So, George, can you forward me, please, the email so I know his <laughs> actual name I'm looking for? <laughs> I will, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, perfect, good. <laughs> that one will rumble on, I feel. I think it will, yeah. Right, moving on. Chris, uh, what's this episode's unpopular opinion? So we've got a really apt one, and this is honestly not stage set up or anything, but for George Ponsonby, our guest today, this is the uh, perfect one for for him to, to, bait, to debate, really. Um, so George... I've got, we've got two Georges. I'm finding this really tricky. <laughs> George Brown hasn't named our correspondent, uh, which he does for every correspondent. So he's leave, left it blank for me to come up with one. I've only just seen this and I've got to do it on the spot. So this one comes from someone we shall call Harold. Okay. Uh, my unpopular opinion to which I would welcome your considered and unbiased view <laughs> is, I believe we should not, and I do not, shoot English grey partridge, no matter how challenging or sporting a shot they present. Clearly a contentious one, he says, which has, at times, elicited scathing and sometimes stronger comments from beaters, keepers and fellow guns. However, the rationale for this belief is mostly because, on the shoots I go to, they are not put down and wild bred. As such, their numbers are in decline, which I believe is a national trend, and while I have no problem shooting the French, I believe the English should be left alone. He meant to add partridge after that, but anyway. <laughs> we assume. Uh, along, with this, <laughs> along with this are their behavioural traits, the first being that they're usually the first game birds to break cover when all the guns are loaded and ready, and secondly, they always come out in a tight covey which makes them easier targets for less able guns. I would welcome your thoughts on this so that I can discover if I should just wind my neck in and stop being so sanctimonious, or if you support and I can take the moral high ground the next time a beta keeper or gun grumbles. So not staged for you, George Ponsonby, but that is someone who wrote in before we agreed you to come on the podcast and that's their opinion. <laughs> yeah, well, there we go. I think I'd go, I, I, I would agree with them. They're not easier to shoot than a, a real well, red yes. I can promise you that. Um, but it happens all the time and it's tragic. It's horrid when you see at the end of the day, you see a grey partridge in the in the bag and we're all disappointed. We, we've all done it. I did it once and um, I wasn't certain that I'd done it until my dog brought it back. And, I, uh, you know, that awful feeling, it's just, yeah. it, is, it is awful, really. 
and I would try very hard not to do it. But it doesn't, you don't get the chance very often. It's not often you see a covey of greys come over a line of guns on a shoot day. Um, mm. And uh, But I know I go along with this chap. I, I, I agree with him wholeheartedly. I would try very, very hard not to shoot them. Yeah. Normally you hear them coming, you know, hear them calling. Yeah. And you can just sort of take a deep breath, let them pass. And um, and then, uh, you know, they can get, get by you unscathed. But I'm afraid it's one of the many reasons why there are so few about now because there are lots of people who release red legs and inevitably, you know, greys will get shot from time to time. And, and it's, it is a big killer, unfortunately, uh, tragically. So most shoots, I think now, if they know they might have some, would say, don't shoot the greys. Sure. But I think I'm, I'm on the spot. I feel like that's a bit of a recent thing I might have heard. I reckon 10, 15 years ago, that wasn't quite the same, would you say? Um, I don't know. I think they, they had quite a good year. I think it was two years ago, and there were a lot of people on the Cotswolds who had a cover or two. Really? So And so we did see a few that year. Um, but, uh, no, I think people, you know, for many years, if people have got greys around, they will, they will flag it up, and uh, we will try very hard not to shoot them. But it's very difficult. If you're trying to encourage the greys, don't put red legs down. Don't shoot red legs because you, you you can't do both. Yeah. So yeah. Um, maybe does that answer the question? It, well, it, it does. It, it, yeah. And, and I, I think we need to dig down a bit more into this assertion, though, that, that grey partridges are easier to shoot than red legs. No, they are most definitely not. I can't say I've had that many opportunities, but I can also safely say I haven't shot any because I completely failed on both occasions. Um, it's uh, it's uh, very on, difficult, I think. On one of my first ever days shooting, when I was standing with uh, my grandpa, I think, or maybe my dad, uh, on a partridge shoot in East Anglia, um, I must have been, uh, you know, sort of fifteen or something like that, and a covey came out, a covey of greys came out early, before the red legs, and I had two barrels, not knowing because they weren't quick. My dad wasn't quick enough to say not them. And I missed them both because, yeah, definitely they were not easy at all. And I'm so glad I missed them both. And I can picture the exact moment to this day that my both shots were behind. I was like, thank goodness for that. So, yeah, I, I'm with you already. They're harder to hit than red legs. <laughs> yeah, most of Well, this is why they're such a sought-after quarry. They, they are the most challenging bird. And there's absolutely, by no stretch of the imagination, are they easier to shoot than a red? Completely agreed. George Brown, do you have them? Do you see them at home at all? Every now and again, we'll get a covey that sort of passes through. Um, but as I've said before on the podcast, you know, we are right on the edge of town. We've got footpaths, we've got dog walkers, we've got horses, um, general uh, members of the public biffing around all over the place. And there's such a lot of disturbance, I think, that they'd probably turn up and think, bugger this for a game of soldiers and move on pretty quickly. I mean, certainly there used to be a lot back in the day, but, you know, the disturbance has increased probably a hundredfold. So, yeah, we don't have many. We, we, I think we saw some a couple of years ago uh, on a shoot day. Uh, they came out early, whipped over the gun line, and we never saw them again. So that tends to be how it goes. Um, the only other aspect to this is I do know of shoots releasing grey partridges which mm -hmm. i feel really funny about uh i don't know why i feel funny about that we can debate that but um 
yeah, I I know that quite a few greys get shot on shoots where you I wouldn't expect to see grey partridges, and that always confuses me because I think this is playing into this guy's opinion that he might come up against because people have seen that. What do we think about that? Mm. Well, I think uh, there are people who have a go and release them. Um, I think I was shooting somewhere last year. Yes, I was. But last year, where they put down, if we managed to get a few, and they came over the guns, and they were quite happy for us to shoot them. I was more than happy to shoot them because I knew they wouldn't breed. They will not breed. Really? And you are completely wasting your time uh, throwing good money after bad by by trying it. It, 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 it will not achieve anything. You, there was one chap who did it extremely well, a fellow, in fact, a former Purdy Gold Award winner, Conrad Goes, who is an Austrian who, ha, who, who has a lovely estate just outside Marlborough. He perfected it down to a fine art. He had an extremely good gamekeeper, and he did it um, in, in quite a big way for, for quite a few years. And that was the next best thing to shooting wild greys. But he, he's the only man I know who's done it. But even the way he was doing it, they didn't breed. They were there for that for that season, and that was it. But somehow that keeper managed to get them over the guns and coveys, and it was it was tremendous. But um, but that's the only person person I know who's done it. So even red legs, released red legs, might breed, but like a fe- like a pheasant, just not very much. Yep, we'll come on to that when we're talking about our shoot, and uh, <laughs> uh, we have an indigenous population of wild red legs. Yeah, um, and uh, they, they they will breed. Yeah. Yeah, you'll okay. get wild red legs, yes. Okay, this is... A very little... underrated bird, wild red legs, in my opinion. I, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. George, yeah. we need to summarise the unpopular opinion. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, again, we've got another unanimous decision, which is um, that the, the, the opinion is not unpopular. Um, we all agree that, that shooting wild greys, uh, as a general rule, is n- not the done thing. Uh, um, but we've also got an uh, an unanimous unpopular opinion, which is that they are easier to shoot than anything else, which is obvious bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> is that fair? Yeah. The, the yeah. problem with saying that is you're egging people on, aren't you? Mm, but hey-ho, don't do it unless instructed to do so, yes. which, yeah. which won't happen either. <laughs> There's something about a covey coming over you which completely throws you. Whereas a single bird is a much easier target. And yeah. you try, you know, plucking a couple out of a covey, it's much more difficult than when a barren pair comes over you. It just is. Mm, so yes. that's, that's part of the joy and excitement of it all. Well, good. So Diogenes and Harold, and now, of course, you as well, George, are all members of the most noble order of the garters and will shortly be in receipt of your very own sets of the highly exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters. If you too have got a shooting confession, quandary or query that you'd like us and our guests to help you with, or if you've got an unpopular opinion you'd like to share, or I think for the last time, if we don't get any of these in, we'll probably not bother anymore. Um, If you'd like to tell us about a forgotten drive uh, and you would like a set of garters, drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. Right, so we've already sort of started talking about this a bit. But I thought maybe um, a good way to kick off this this grey partridge conversation is to, uh, George, do you think you could give us a bit of a background on grey partridges in the UK? Because it wasn't all that long ago that they were fairly abundant. Um, and as we've already dis- discussed, they are pretty much in decline, apart from in a few areas. So what were the, the driving forces behind that decline? 
oh, um, a, a combination of things, but I, I think probably the most important was was intensive farming. Um, common agricultural policy encouraged farmers to produce as much as possible. Um, agrochemicals from the early 60s onwards uh, were increasingly used and probably lack of understanding. I don't, I don't think you know, that generation of farmers realised, none of us realised, the damage that pesticides were doing. Um, but it doesn't stop at pesticides. It's things like night work. It's machinery, which is very wide. You know, a 40-foot combine is a very different machine to an 8-foot combine. And the, 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 the creatures don't, don't have much of a chance. Straw burning was obviously bad news. Mowing, you know, intensive silage is bad news. Um, all sorts of things. I could, you know, it goes on and on. And it's just conspired to oversee a dramatic fall in the numbers from, you know, 100 years ago, 60s. They were, they were pretty good in the 60s. And that's when, 50s and 60s, that's when they were, they were good. And after that, they were never, never so good again. So, but it, your summary basically kind of confirms that it was going to be impossible to ever stop that decline because all the things although obviously a lot of farming practices you've just touched upon have improved not to the level at which it would have stopped a decline in grey partridges no um well we managed to stop a decline um well so we need to come on to that but i on a national scale yeah well you need you need to be a nutter to want to do it (laughs) i'm afraid and um i think i'm sort of widely seen as a bit of being a bit of a nutter and, you know, you've got to want to do it. You've got to be passionate about it. You've got to be driven. You've got to, you've got to be thinking every time you're doing something on the farm, hang on a minute, what do the partridges think? Oh, no, perhaps we better not. We won't finish that field of wheat at night. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll finish it off in the morning. Th- things like that. And that doesn't suit everyone, no. uh, I'm afraid. Yeah. And... Um, Sorry, I've now forgot what the original question was, but it's not for everyone. Yeah, yeah. No, I well, I think it's important then to to go back to the sort of start of 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 your journey into this. Your 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 own words, you're a nutter. But where did that come from? What what got you to to into this project, as it were? Well, um, I, I I think I've always been interested in and in, in grey partridges. I've always been interested in wild birds. I can remember going on my very first day shooting wild pheasants many, many years ago with a friend, and it just made such an impression on me. That I thought, this is this is completely different, and this is such fun. Um, and then I sort of just developed an interest in in in, in um, grey partridges. Uh, there was a lovely fellow at the GWCT, from, he's retired now, called Peter Thompson. And Peter is a very knowledgeable man and a great enthusiast. And... Uh, um, Every time I'd see him, we'd always talk about grey partridges, and I, you know, we'd go to shoot walks, and Peter would be running it, and that sort of thing, and um, and uh, so he sort of he sort of stoked up my enthusiasm. So I, I don't know; it's just something that's evolved over time. And and did you do you have like a long standing affinity with grey partridges? Did you shoot them in your youth, for example? Or no, you... no, no, no. I'm too I'm too young for that. <laughs> uh, sadly, no. Uh, I don't know. It just. It's just one of those things that I've just always been very interested in. And um, and so, um, and I may say, we'll come on to it, no doubt, in a minute, but uh, 10 years ago, I had absolutely no idea that I was going to have a shoot of my own. It never crossed my mind. It wasn't part of a plan. It just evolved over time. And um, it's, it's funny, it just sort of things fell into place very nicely. That, so that's really interesting. So, so you, 
you you started farming. You you acquired a farm in uh, what sort of year? Are we okay. Well, I, I, I've been a, a tenant farmer for nearly forty years, and, um, and then in nineteen ninety five, I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. I bought my own three hundred acre farm, and then gradually over the following twenty years, I acquired some neighbouring farms. Uh, all on contract, all adjoining and all on, on contract farming agreement. And every time I took on a farm, rather tongue in cheek, I said, um, could I have the shooting rights? And I, to start with, I don't know why I did it, because we <laughs> didn't do anything about it. We didn't shoot the ground, we didn't feed the birds or anything, but every time I took on a farm, I asked for the shooting rights. And then um, after 20 years, I got the contract on an 800 acre farm, also adjoining, also got the shooting rights. And then I suddenly realized I got 2,000 acres in one block. Um, <laughs> and I thought I've got enough ground to have my own shoot. And then um, sometimes in life, things are meant to happen. And out of the blue, um, while the ink was still wet on signing the contract on this 800 acres, I got an email from a young man called Frank Snudden, who introduced himself as um, he was one of the beat keepers on the Arundel estate, on the wild partridge shoot at Peppering, down in West Sussex. And he said he'd been there for two years. He was a Gloucestershire man, so was his girlfriend. And they wanted to return to Gloucestershire. And they'd heard a rumour that I might be considering starting a partridge shoot. Quite how he'd heard this, but, but he was absolutely right. And he'd heard a rumour, <laughs> would I ever, if, if, if I wanted to take on a gamekeeper, would I ever consider offering the job. So um, one thing led to another. And um, in March 2017, Frank came to work for me. That's how it all started. That's mega. I love that yeah. you heard a rumour when it was only an idea in your head. Well, I'll tell you, I'll, very quickly, I'll tell you what happened. I went to an open day down at Peppering. Okay. Being, and being so fascinated, uh, I suppose there were probably a group of 40 farmers there uh, because I was so interested. I was right at the front of the crowd and I was probably asking more questions than anyone else. And I think once it had all, observed, all over, we'd all gone. I think Frank must have said, who the hell was that? Who's that <laughs> eccentric old fellow? And so I think that's what, that's how he came about. Oh, brilliant. And yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. 2017, he comes up to join you. And is that the start of this journey? Yes. Uh, yes. Up to... A Purdy Gold Award yes, as yes. of a, f a month or so ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a really short space of time. Well, I can't overemphasize how much luck we had. We've had, we've had touch wood. We've had very, very little bad luck. We've, we've enjoyed. Uh, I mean, you can do everything you want to help the grey partridge, but the crucial thing that's out of your control at all, it completely, is the is the weather in June. And we've had, by and large almost perfect dunes every year not quite but very nearly so um that's luck you know we do that was yeah. just very very fortuitous but but there's a lot of work as well so what i wanted to ask is so from 2017 up until 2017 you'd been farming for want of a better word conventionally um is that right and then come 2017 you start making changes or had you got a bit of a kind of wild bird focus up and yeah so so then what happened so frank came to work in march 17 we did our spring pear count that uh, month 
And um, we had rather amazingly, we had 17 pairs of wild English partridges already on the place. And I think looking back, um, that was another stroke of luck because they were here despite the fact there was no vermin control, no feeding and no nothing really of any significant uh, habitat. That's fascinating. So I, yeah. we have since thought they actually probably were a bunch of bright little toughies. Yeah. And they mm -hmm. have bred toughies the number the numbers that we've got since are all descended from them and i think that's that was that was um that probably had quite a lot to do with our some semblance of success um but we then managed to persuade all the landowners um to join the countryside stewardship scheme we were then able to design the schemes ourselves so we just got out our farm maps and frank was much more knowledgeable than me in, in, in all about the habitat and stuff and he explained to me what, what we really needed. And our landowners were absolutely fantastic. They went along with everything we wanted. They never raised an objection because they were as, almost as enthusiastic about it as we were because, you know, when they let us the shooting rights, they sort of imagined we'd put in three release pens and, and, um, and a few cover crops and that sort of thing. But when we explained to them what we wanted to do, they were much more interested and much more enthusiastic than, than we ever dared hope, really. So... We put in, um, I mean, there's always room for improvement, obviously, but we put in as close to perfection as we as we possibly could for the Great Partridge, which um, I think if you can sum up in one word what they need is insects. And you, you can do all sorts of other things, but if there aren't the insects there, when the chicks hatch close to where they're nesting, they will die. They have to have insects and, um, you know, for many, many weeks uh, early on. And if they don't have those insects, they will die. So things like beetle banks and stuff are just absolutely fundamental. Yes. Well, but yeah, beetle banks is a uh, beetle bank itself is actually just nesting cover. You need adjacent really? to the beetle bank. You need insects. You need something. So our beetle banks would be um, a banked up bit of soil yeah. all the way down the field, sort of banked up sort of by plowing both ways. Yeah, and then um, you would plant Coxford primarily, so good tussocky grass. That's nesting cover, but the insects are provided by what you grow immediately adjacent to the the beetle bank. So uh, we we tend to grow um, a, a wild flower margin, yeah, or, and or a strip of kale. Second year kale is very good for insects, and and so and wildflowers are the ultimate. Um, but a bit of variety is good because sometimes if it's very wet, the wildflowers tend to get a bit soggy and aren't great news, whereas kale can be a bit more open down at the bottom. So a bit of variety is good. And um, we, by and large, we, we, we put wildflowers around the outside of not all yet, but most of our fields. And are they, sorry to get too into, into this, are they, is that annually planted wildflowers? No, no, that's great. The beauty, the beauty of the flowers is they last for a long time. They're brilliant. You do it right in the they? first place. Yeah, they yeah. Because it's ridiculously expensive to plant wildflowers, right? Very, yeah, yeah. And you've got to do it right. You've got to get, fun enough, I'm just by way of ordering some more seed at the moment. And and uh, there's one particular chap that we buy a lot of our seed from, and he's very, very knowledgeable. And we, we're sort of designing our own mix because we've, we've got it wrong a few times. And, and you, you can have it too thick. You don't want clover. You want very little grass, and um, uh, you need lots of flowers. And um, nature is the most extraordinary thing. You know, you give nature a chance, and it just seizes it with both hands. 
and mm, suddenly absolutely. You know, the insects just appear. You ought to come down, actually, because they're, they're, they're come here in June, uh, June on a sunny day and go out with a sweep net and sweep for insects. It's, it's, it's one of the great exciting times of year when you just see, you get this uh, sort of bundle of seed and trash in the bottom of the net, and then it's just sort of boiling with insects. And then, of course, you know, just one of those will probably keep a partridge chick alive for one day. Yeah. So good. Uh, Tarquin, uh, I know that you know, you've obviously mentioned Tarquin yeah. already, but and that you know him very well. They, this is this is not intentional, the way that these episodes have gone, but it's brilliant to have this overlap because at the end of the last episode, he got us so excited about some of the, the um, observing he'd been doing at yours, I believe. Uh, and yeah, just, well, just sounded absolutely mega. We're very lucky to have him as Indian Navy because we, we, we've become good friends and, and it's great fun sharing, you know, something as exciting as this. Um, with 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 somebody who's equally interested, and because uh, he completely gets it, the, you know, the, you you know when you're talking to somebody yeah. if they get it or not. He does; he completely understands it. Um, yeah. But what I what I often find myself saying is that uh, what we've discovered it wasn't something we sort of set out to do, but we discovered that if you raise the bar really high, and you try to provide um, perfection or near perfection for the grey partridge, there are a lot of creatures which are much less discerning. Um, which will really benefit. So if you aim for the partridge, you will get hundreds of pheasants, yellow hammers, bumblebees, you name it, who are, who are much less fussy. But of course, because it's so good for the partridge, it's also very good for them. And, and it's, um, I think these countryside stewardship schemes are designed by Natural England. And they're probably not that fussed if George Punsonby has two days driven wild partridges rather than one. I don't suppose they give a damn. <laughs> but what they really like to see is if we've got a thriving population of yellow hammers and linnets and, and goldfinches and, uh, yeah. and what have you. And when we, uh, just occasionally, we get an RPA inspection, and um, uh, which normally, uh, when, you, you know, when they ring up the day before, so they're coming to have a look, you then don't have a sleep. You have a sleepless night because you're worried that they're going to oh. catch you out. Um, we we obviously are worried they're going to catch us out because we made a mistake, and more often than not, they, they'll they'll find something wrong. But they're very often very knowledgeable, what we call birders. And when mm. they come, when they come in, you know, a day cold winter's day in January, and they come around the corner, and the the linnets just lift out of a crop of second year kale, they love it, and um, you 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 could you could feel that you're sort of winning them round and uh, maybe they've got a job to do and if you know if you're doing something wrong they will find out and you'll probably get your knuckles wrapped but um you could feel them coming on side and, and getting enthusiastic yeah. and seeing you know that this is one of the one of the schemes that's really really working and um i love it for example if uh, i'm stopped in the street by a, a non-shooting person who says um i don't really I can't get what you're doing about shooting because I don't understand shooting. But what I love to see is all those yellow hammers, mm. which I never used to see. And, you know, people do notice it, which is, which is, which is, which is great. I was going to say, Chris, we've got the answer to your question from last time, which is how do you get yellow hammers in your garden? Answer, start a grey partridge shoot. Simple. That's one way of doing it. Yes. <laughs> whilst you were talking there, I, I, this really gets me. This subject, I absolutely love it. Whilst you were talking, I was thinking on my acre field, my single acre field. What could I possibly do? And I'm thinking I've ruined it already because I, I take the dog around the perimeter of it. So that's just gonna 
that's going to ruin any chance of anything ever ever breeding in there but i was wondering what could i possibly do to like increase the chances of just stuff happening in this field you know well i think probably just feed feed it through the winter have some yeah. bird feeders yeah and a mixture of uh, not just wheat not just rape but you know some cereals mixed with some small seeds they love uh, birds love sunflowers millet uh Aussie rape mixed with wheat is a very good combination um and you'll get the birds flocking in um but um you need you you need insects, of course, when they're all yeah. hatching. That's that's absolutely crucial. Yeah, uh, so, fascinating. So I wanted to ask about sort of. So we've just discussed where you started from. So um, from those seventeen breeding pairs in twenty seventeen, is that right? Um, so where yes. are you now? Okay, so um, we so the first summer was a good June, and then uh, which was, which was which was great, and then so I'd get regular texts and video clips from Frank when he'd spotted a brood and um, they, 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 they did very well and we had an autumn count, I can't remember exactly, but that autumn, I think we got up an autumn count of about 120, 130. The following spring, the numbers have crept up a bit. I mean, it sounds agonizingly slow, but it's it, the time does shoot by and I think the spring count, the following spring was about 25 or 30. Then the summer of 18 was, was a very good summer it was a wet spring, but then suddenly the sun came out, and we had a we had a wonderful year for wild partridges, and it was a particularly hot summer. And what was very noticeable was that the wild redlegs did very well. Now the wild redleg hen is an absolutely lousy mother, um, so if you get a thunderstorm, a grey partridge, the cock and the hen will get those little chicks underneath them, and they will survive a thunderstorm because they're good parents. Well. Uh, a, a red leg hen is is completely hopeless and um, is a bit like a headless chicken, really. I mean, it's just you know, if you 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 see a brood of ten one day and you think, "Whoopee, here we go," and I'm afraid, you know, a week later, it's very often a brood of two or three if we're lucky. Um, but that summer they did really well, and we I, I can't remember what our spring pair kind of red legs was, but we must have had I don't know sixty pairs or something like that, and 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 we had some decent sized broods. And so I said to Frank at the end of July, you get a feel, come July, you get a feel for what how things have gone, even though you can't see that many because of the vegetation, but you just, you know, you've seen a few broods and you'll know if you're having a good year simply because of what the weather's been doing. And it was quite obvious, that, you know, there was quite a, a lot of um, young birds out there. And I said to Frank, why don't we have a really small day of driven partridges and we'll only shoot the red legs. And we'll get a really small bag. We know that. I bet I can find seven local friends who will come and just, you know, we'll tell them, it's, you don't expect, we're not going to get three figures. We're going to have a small day uh, and we'll only shoot the wild red legs. Let's have it in October or November so we can shoot a few wild pheasants as well to bulk up the bag. And let's see. One of the things that... Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'll duck and dive. But um, one of the things that before we started or when we were thinking of starting, people, one chap said to me, it'll never work because, and I'll tell you why it won't work, is because the skill of flanking has died out. You will not find a man who knows how to flank <laughs> wild partridges. And so that worried me. And, 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 and I thought, probably, well, he probably knows what he's talking about. And I said this to Frank. I said, you, you know, we, do, are we going to get good flankers? And he said, oh, yes, yes, we'll get flankers. It won't be a problem. And, but this was our chance. Have we got people out there who can flank? 
because it is a big skill. Though. Good flankers are completely indispensable. And does Frank know how to drive wild partridges? That's a massive skill. You know, a good keeper can be yeah. good at trapping a rat or or a fox, but but to drive partridges, that is a huge skill. And here was our chance. We're going to have a really small day, and uh, let's just uh, explain to our guests that it's going to be a small day, and let's see what what we can actually achieve. And anyway, Frank, of course, took it very seriously. He planned for it, and all his key flankers were, were, were came out the week before, and they were told exactly where to be and exactly when at each drive. And the planning was absolutely meticulous. And he laid on an absolute vintage team of veterans who uh, of about 45 beaters and flankers. And <laughs> we got a bag of 43 birds, which uh, we've had many highlights. Of that, of all the excitements, I think that probably was the biggest excitement because it was, I may say, it was the first time the wild partridges have been driven over guns on these farms for very nearly 50 years. So it was it was a very exciting, for us in our little world that we live in, it was an exciting time. And we then knew we'd got flankers who knew how to flank. I knew Frank knew how to drive wild partridges. And um, after only be doing it for, you know, only our second season, we'd actually had our very first day of so we 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 were up and running in only our second season, uh, which was which was a which was a you know, a big excitement. The you might wonder how on earth do you shoot red wild red legs and not shoot the greys? And what you need is very, very good flankers, the two flankers closest to the guns. And what they do on a day like that uh, is they just when there's a covey of greys coming, they just blow the whistle and they go beep, 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 beep. Oh. And then you know, take a deep breath, calm down, let the covey come through, and and um, and then carry on shooting. And the red legs tend to come over as single birds. So they're they're reasonably easy to pick out, and um, it's it's actually easier to do than it sounds. That's it. I I was on a shoot once where the the host or the the the, the shoot manager sat in the hedge in front of the guns on the floor, and with a little whistle and just pipped the whistle for for red legs. Yeah. On a on just on a driven red leg shoot. Yeah. But I <laughs> it almost made it bit too easy if i'm honest but it was um <laughs> but it was an interesting one because for a lot of people for a lot of people who certainly uh were, were maybe slightly older and slower than i was uh it was vital uh when you were shooting red legs over over hedgerows um but uh yeah it's an interesting one so so this is fascinating you've done you you've two years you've you've ended up with this day which you're clearly never going to forget and and presumably the sum of the parts that you've created, you've 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 got these sort of hardy greys. You've then found Frank. You've found these flankers. You've realised you've got something that presumably that was the impetus that enabled you to just go. Actually, let's sort of really keep pushing it at this. Was was that a turning point for you? Oh yeah, I mean then then we we I mean of course on the day we saw the covers of greys coming over the guns, which was, was you know we we actually saw them, and we could see that the flankers could. Could could flank them, and, and so um, you know, it was it was it was it was um, it was tremendous. It was very very exciting, um, and um, so then um, I may say that um, as I said earlier, you know, you, if you if you aim for the great partridge, you'll get lots of pheasants, and um, they 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 absolutely thrive once you start. If you provide good habitat for partridges, the pheasants absolutely love it, and if you control the foxes and the crows and the rats. Uh, the pheasants will, will 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 love it as well, and uh, we're very flat here, and a reared bird it wouldn't be particularly exciting 
bird really, but a wild pheasant is very different. And they have legs like coiled up springs. And when they are being flushed, you know, from a strip of kale, they just quite literally reach for the sky, which which on our flat ground is vertical takeoff. Yeah, which is which is which is great. They talk so, about this in Norfolk a lot, don't they? Yeah, I think they are a breed of of their own. I've never done that, and I, I really want to do it. I suspect they're they they are really special. The fen uh, pheasants. Yeah, I, I've, I've never understood it how in the flattest country and you mm. think pheasants here would just be awful they really do go up like yes um they they do and i mean of course there's there's no cover there i don't you know not much not much in the way of trees and, and bushes yeah. and hedges and what have you which would give something for them to aim at where there's nothing they have no choice but to go straight up that's their first inclination yeah it, it brought back some memories when you were saying about wild red legs and wild pheasants um i was lucky enough to well win a silent auction at to at the GWCT uh dinner bull uh where we we shot at uh, Rotherfield in Hampshire. Oh yeah I know yes yes uh and um that was all I know there was a few released. I think they released a few but I, I forget the reason but um that was mainly wild and there's a lot of wild red legs there and I I could really tell that something was different I couldn't quite put my finger on it but you really noticed that you were on a different event everything was you know relatively unique in a way about that shoot and it was a real privilege Mm. um and I so I, I can totally relate to what you're saying so what I'm saying to everyone else is if you get this sort of opportunity and I know that Rotherfield comes up in GWCT auctions from time to time it's worth it's worth um, trying to see if you can find yourself on a day like this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, most definitely. I'm just trying to get my head around how exciting it must have been for you to see those wild greys going over the guns on that day and think, wow, this could actually be a thing. Um, mm. Yeah, it, it must just have been the most fantastic feeling. Um, I'm doing the thing that you shouldn't do in interviews and tell people what they must have felt, but I can't think of any other way of explaining it. <laughs> did, did you go home and have like a whole case of otter heads when you got home? I right? actually collapsed in the heap and, and, and then just, we sort of lived, uh, lived on a high for many weeks. We were just, you know, so excited. But one of the, one of the flankers, who's an absolutely delightful fellow, he, he, he sent me an email and he said that was the greatest sporting occasion on the Cotswolds for 50 years. Well, I'm not sure I go quite that far, but it was sort of um, it was a lovely, a lovely bit of feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's huge. I, w- I wonder what the thing was he was referencing in the Cotswolds fifty years ago. Well, was. indeed, indeed. <laughs> yeah, great point, point victory or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're only as good as your last season, right? You know that a dodgy summer could send you right back to to square one. So, how was last year? It was very hot. How did they? Copen yes okay so um the, the so just going back briefly so the numbers built up gradually 2019 we actually shot wild greys as, as part of our partridge day and i think we got about 10 brace or something like that and we got quite a few red legs quite a few pheasants and we got a bag of i don't know 125 birds or something like that and then it, and then it just sort of gradually got a bit built up and i think in the year um 2020 by then, our numbers had gone up. Our partridge numbers had gone up by grey partridge by about six hundred percent from when we started, which was which was um, you know quite quite a, quite a quite a big leap really. And then last year was um, 
we were all rather naively hoping it was going to be the greatest vintage year for many, many years, because you won't be, you're, you're too young to know this, but 1976 was a, was a very, very hot summer. It was the last great year for grey partridges. There are, there, are, there are people around, you know, who remember it as a super year. And we rather naively thought, whoopee, it's going to be the same. Uh, actually, uh, I think we were all just slightly disappointed. I think it was too hot. Yeah. And um, I think that the insect numbers, while they were good in June, insect numbers to for the insect numbers to be good, you need uh, the occasional thunderstorm as well as hot sunny weather. Yeah. And of course, we didn't get any thunderstorms. And the last decent drop of rain we had was the 18th of June, and then July, boy, was that hot. August yeah. was hot, and we didn't we didn't fully appreciate uh, until uh, I think it was about the 10th of August. Frank found a grey partridge that had been predated by a sparrowhawk or something and he picked it up and we 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 we, we cut it open and uh it was full of insects in august and so um they obviously need insects far longer than we actually realized and I th- when i say it's full of insects probably didn't have enough but um I think that they they need. It seems to us now that they need insects for longer than we actually thought. Mm. And I think when it was very very hot in July and August, mm. there weren't enough. I, I remember having a conversation with someone last summer saying, "Have you noticed how your windscreen is not messy enough?" Mm. And it was really noticeable. I felt last summer because, yeah, definitely, certainly where we are in the southeast in Kent, it was just way too dry. Like it it gone past that point. And I was in I was intrigued. So was the summer of twenty twenty, which for, well, it's lockdown summer for everyone. You know, we yeah. can all remember that fairly well. That um, was a good year. That was a was, really good year. I was going to yeah. say because we had a lovely balance of yeah. hot weather, but also a little bit of rain to kick yeah. it off. And, yeah. and and so I imagine that was better than last year. Yes, or, it was. Yes, it yeah. was. Yeah, they did very well. Um, and um, uh, uh, um, twenty one was a bit damp, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it was really. It was rubbish. a grey old, grey old summer, wasn't it? But we yeah. we had we had enough. Um, uh, I suppose it could have been better. The the, the brood average is what really uh, tells you if it's been a good year or not. You know, if you've got a brood average of two or three, it's not great, but sometimes you can get a brood average of six or seven. And then, you know, that's probably because the insects numbers have been good. Probably. Yeah. Mm. Gosh. I, and I've never heard, going, what you said at the start, I've never heard someone summarise it so precisely as just weather in June. I've always known about, you know, breeding season and stuff like that, but I've never heard someone just say weather in June. That's it. Mm. Well, I mean, of course, you can do everything else. You know, you can get all the habitat right. Um, you can control the vermin. Um, but the one thing that's out of your control is is that weather in June. And it is, it's nerve-wracking. You know, you get to, you, you know, us, us farmers, we're all the same. We're always looking at weather forecasts. And, and, and you get so twitchy at the beginning of June looking at those long-range forecasts and what's it going to be like from the 7th onwards. Yeah. And um, you just do not want cold, wet weather. And it's a really sketchy month isn't it though mm-hmm. I, I, my birthday's in june so it's one of those ones you can remember when you're a child like having parties outside and then being rained off uh but uh it, it's one of those months where it's actually a lot more rain than most would expect i, I remember talking to a chap in it is uh, right. in, in east anglia who said to me what do you reckon the uh the wettest month is in our and our place in in essex and i was like you know thinking of all the obvious ones and he was like august wettest month of the year pretty much every year and I, yeah. in, and it makes you think. It's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. No, it, it, insects is the key. That's the thing. And there was a lovely man. Who, I sadly, I never met him called Dick Potts, who worked for the Game Conservancy for many years. And he was mm. the great guru. And he teamed up with um, 
in my opinion, the great unsung hero of the world of grey partridges is a, is a chap called Hugh Oliver Bellasis, who, who farms just outside Basingstoke. And George, yeah, well, I, I know Hugh oh, very well. To? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so he came out of the army. I can't quite remember when, late, late 70s, went back home to farm. Suddenly, to his horror, he saw there were no partridges. And then he teamed up with Dick Potts and said, you know, what on earth's going on? What are we doing wrong? Dick Potts explained to him that, they, you know, they weren't getting enough insects. And that's when they pioneered what quickly became known as the conservation headland and uh, proved that, you know, if you do provide um, weeds or flowers or whatever it is, the insects can then colonize. If you provide those uh, immediately adjacent to where the partridges are nesting, then then you're up and running. That's what they're missing. So you... so. After this last summer, you've had not as good a year as expected. You then come round to Purdy Awards time, and, and to, to talk us through this, had okay. this been had this been something that you just sort of thought, well, oh, actually, we should consider this, or had it been had it been a bit of a milestone or something you were aiming for? Um, well, just sorry, just to, just to, to re- re- recap briefly, um, we although it wasn't quite as good a year as we thought, we still had two days. For the first time ever, <laughs> and we had two. The, the, we, the, really, we had two absolutely fantastic days last autumn. We had a day of sixty-three brace and a day of fifty-five brace, um, and that was wow. I think those are the sort of numbers where we, we, I doubt we'll ever do much more than that. But if we could do, you know, two or even three days like that, it's it's about as good as probably we'll ever get to. But sorry, in answer to a question, um, sorry the the fact that we had two days was a very important part of our Purdy submission because they don't just want to see habitat. Yeah. They want to see something actually, they want to see some fruits of your endeavours. Yeah. And if, you, if you're if you all talk and you've got lots of habitat and you talk a lot about grey punches, that's one thing. But if you're shooting them, then they can see, you know, that you are uh, perhaps having just a little bit of success. And that's what they, uh, so when they came to see us, um, they then texted us, you know, immediately after our first day, how did Friday go? And so I was able to tell them. And then um, and then they knew we were shooting two day, two weeks later. And then sure enough, again, text came in, how did, how did Friday go? And that's, that's an important part. They, they really wanted to know how, how, how successful we were in terms of shooting. So in answer to a question about how it all came about, um, I mean, I knew of the Purdy Award, like, like lots of people do. And Frank knew, and of course, Frank, had, his previous employer had won it, mm, not while yes. Frank was there, but uh, they were still, you know, he was basking in the reflected glory and knew all about it, no doubt. And the, the head keeper was the same chap, obviously. And so we thought, um, let's have a go. But again, as with our grey partridges, we were incredibly lucky because we put our first submission in, in 2020, May 2020, and it was cancelled because of COVID. And then we submitted again the following May and it was cancelled again because of COVID. But that was the most enormous stroke of luck for us because we weren't actually ready. Our habitat wasn't quite uh, quite good enough. There was plenty of room for improvement. Our partridge numbers were not as good as they eventually became. And we were only shooting one day instead of two and the little things like that. I I don't think we would have won it if, we'd, if, we'd, if it had gone ahead in either of those two years. So we were jolly lucky. And so then, um, 
but no, of course, it gave us that little bit extra time to sort of fine tune it. And, and by the time yeah. we did send a submission, you know, we'd, we'd put an enormous amount of time and thought into it. And, um, and we were just about probably as good as we'll ever be. I can't see it's getting any better than this. And because we're, you know, we're a smallish farm. Um, and this is the Cotswolds. This is not, not the sand of Norfolk. Uh, it's not the chalk, which are the preferred soil types of the partridge. Cotswolds is very definitely second division soil wise for the partridge. Um, and so I think the, these are the sort of numbers we're, we're, we're always going to have, I suspect. Um, and um, so in went the submission. Um, then we heard nothing for quite a while. And then one of the judges got in touch and said, we were on a short list, could they come and see us? So they came to see us. And then we, we, I have to say, we did put in quite a lot of effort and we planned for it meticulously. I think Frank was, um, I think he just sort of shake his head and roll his eyes when, when, when I came up with yet another idea of what we're going to do when we're taking the judges around. But, uh, <laughs> he, he rose to the challenge beautifully. And I, and I, I said, uh, so we agreed the route we're going to go around and all that sort of stuff. And uh, then I said, what they really want to see is they want to see a couple of grays. And at the end of August, it's quite difficult. Uh, yeah. they're, they're, they're immediately after harvest, they're quite frightened because all the covers disappeared and they tend to keep their heads down. And, you know, for a couple of weeks, you don't tend to see very many. So I wasn't that optimistic. And, and uh, so, so Frank said, well, I know where I know where the best places to go to, to give ourselves a chance. Anyway, so the judges came, and of course they were, they were complete purists. They really got it. They really understood it, and um, they knew, you know, there's a pretty good chance we might struggle to, to see a covey. But as luck would have it, we did, and uh, I think we saw five or six coveys as we drove around, and they were nice sized coveys, and so it got them all that got them all excited. So then, um, uh, of course, we had our secret weapon in Tarquin. Uh, and who lives very close, and he's been uh, prowling around the farm for quite a long time now, taking photographs. And I said to him, and it, Tarkin was as keen as I was that we were going to win it. He really was absolutely <laughs> determined. Uh, if we weren't going to win it, we were going to give it our very best shot. And I said to him about a month before the judges came, I said, do you think you could ever put together a little video of some footage Ah, and so I've, I've seen this yeah so he rose to the challenge uh, as only Tarquin can and he put this little seven minute video together and um so when the judges came we said what time do you want to leave and, and so we said well, we'd like to show you a video at the very end so let's get back in time back to the office in time just to show you the video so uh, when we got back to the office, there was Tarquin, who, who'd let himself in. He'd got the screen up, he'd drawn the curtains, he'd got the chairs already. And and then he showed the video on the on, on the, his big screen. And it is, it's, a, it's a fantastic bit of footage. And um, so they, I think, you know, they loved that. And then they, they left and um, we heard absolutely nothing uh, for a long time. And then one day I got a telephone call from one of the ladies in the office at, uh, Purdy's HQ. This was in early December, saying, um, we, "Congratulations, you're on the shortlist. Uh, would you, by any chance, be free to come to, to the awards evening on the second of February?" So, uh, of course, we said yes, and then we had to wait another two months. Time crawled by, and um, and then on the second of February, um, we went to the awards evening. 
uh, we walked into Purdy's and uh, lovely atmosphere. I mean, it was just a very friendly uh, atmosphere. I mean, there's such a lovely bunch of people. And I must say, extremely well organized, very, very well run professionally. Uh, the whole thing is, is, is beautifully done. And uh, so we had a sausage roll and a glass of wine for a few minutes and a brief chat, making small talk while my mind was whirring away frantically, as you might imagine. And then we were called through to the long room at the back and the Duke of Wellington, who's the chairman of the panel of judges, then started dishing out the awards. And there were eight people on the shortlist and all of us got an award. So he went through each one and described the shoot and somebody went up to get an award and we weren't mentioned. And uh, so this was good. <laughs> and I was um, uh, uh, holding my wife's hand harder and harder and um, uh, then uh, they it got to the bronze award and it wasn't us. And then they got to the silver award and it wasn't us. And lo and behold, then our name came up on the screen and and we were the winners. So it was it was it was a very very exciting evening. It was it was great. Yeah, it must have been an incredibly proud moment for you and for the rest of yeah, your team. Yeah, it was. It was, well. and, uh, and, uh, and 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 a huge feather in Frank's cap too, because yeah, uh, with we would never have won it without Frank. It's awesome. Yeah. I, I was standing next to Tarquin uh, when you it, when you got the award at the time, and he was so happy. Uh, he was almost sort of crawling up there himself to join you. Uh, it, was so, <laughs> it was so good to see. Uh, and I know that both you and Frank were slightly lost for words at the time. And Al- Alistair Cook was the ju- uh, was the uh, presenter, wasn't he? Yes. The cricketer. yes. Uh, and <laughs> trying to sort of get out of you what it meant. And both of you were sort of stood there like could couldn't quite believe it. <laughs> Of course, I, had, I, I didn't dare prepare anything to say so um, uh, because I didn't want to tempt fate. So um, it was all off the cuff. And, uh, um, but, but anyway, we, 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 we got through that. And um, jolly nice to meet Alistair Cook. But um, <laughs> as you probably know, Frank has now moved on to past his new. He's gone and got a most fantastic job down at Font Hill in Wiltshire where they're embarking on a wonderful, very ambitious project of going all wild on on the 9,000 acre estate, I think it is. Wow. Uh, with Frank as head keeper. And um, he's working for Alistair Margadale. And he, I was there that evening. And uh, he came up to me at the end. He said, I feel as if I've just signed Lionel Messi. <laughs> I say, I, it had happened at that yeah, point, had yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Frank had already been offered the job by then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is. Yeah, we've touched upon this before. It's so sad when you hear it. Didn't this come up with Peter Mackey, George? It did, and exactly this thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. Winning he... the Purdy Award is the worst thing you could do because you lose your best guy. <laughs> it's like it's like the sort of Champions League of, 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 uh, of shooting. Uh, and it just puts them on the, on the big screen and everyone goes, oh, great, I'll have him. Uh, uh, well, he, he'd actually got the job before we won it and he got it deservedly so. It's a fantastic move for him. Um, I'm realistic enough to, to realise we're a small affair and if you're as good a keeper as Frank is, you don't want to stay here for, forever. And I know, in fact, we, we talked about his career a lot and I, I was always encouraging him you know, to look out for the next opportunity and I used to tease him. I used to say, um, will your wife want to go to Norfolk when the king comes knocking on your door? And, um, and uh, <laughs> anyway, that, and then, that didn't happen. He's gone to Font Hill instead. So, uh, it's a tremendous move for him, and 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 uh, uh, a young chap called Niall Wright has taken Frank's place. He's hit the ground running, 
and he's got all those wonderful skills of a, of a wild partridge keeper. And I, I, I think that um, uh, young Niall is, is Frank Mark too. So we, with a little bit of luck, we'll carry on regardless. I'm yeah. sure. And it, it's so good to hear you talk about, you know, like Frank yeah. in that way and to have helped him with his career and then to be so pleased for him to, to press on. I mean, that's that's awesome. And best of luck to Frank. Obviously, mm-hmm. we'll... Um, we'll, we'll have to sort of check in on him in a, in a while and see how see how um, they're getting. Well, on I, I, I want yeah. him to be the first keeper to win the Verdi Award twice. Ah, oh, well, that would be an amazing thing, wouldn't it? Presumably, Alistair Margadale's got big plans. Yes, and and to, to be absolutely uh, uh, accurate, it's his son Declan as well. The the two of them are, you know, they're they're really really determined. They're very passionate. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. A stunning bit of ground down there. Mm. I've... We could talk about this for absolutely ages, but I'm conscious that we've yes. been going for quite a long time already, and we've still got a, a, one very important question to ask you. Um, well, two. The first one I want to ask is: you, you've said said already that you've got to be. Uh, I think your word was potty uh, to um, to try and do this, um, but I would imagine that there's going to be lots of people listening who would just absolutely love the opportunity to shoot you know 100 120 bird wild partridge wild gray partridge day so in your view is it still the case that it's going to be a few very passionate people doing things like this or is it possible that the changes in the way that subsidies are dished out uh and um a focus maybe on uh, more sympathetic farming practices could see more people taking your lead and that we might see a few more of these kind of shoots around or is it such a labor of love and so difficult that it's really just going to be a few few very passionate people doing it okay well it is uh, catching on but very very slowly so there are a number of new people having a go uh, which is great i mean we love it when people come and see us and say you know what what how do we do it what do we do and then when you see them starting and, and see them succeeding, I mean, I, I, I can think of two, two places which are, which, are, which are having a go now. But it's, so it is a slow uh, progression. Um, I think you've got to have the right soil. It's no good thinking you can do it on clay because it just won't. It won't work. You can get wild pheasants, but you won't get wild grazers. They just don't like it. And so you need the right soil. We were blessed with uh, lovely hedges, mm. big wide hedges and and quite small fields and that i think is a big help you know when it was really hot last summer they could get in underneath those hedges but probably there was still a few insects in there because it was cool Mm. and um and obviously you know wonderful cover and that sort of thing so that's that makes a difference i think big big fields with not much in the way of cover then you you've got to um you've got to put in you've got to plant a whole lot of hedges which is indeed what they did down at peppering because it was going down there on the Arundel estate. That, that's when I suddenly realised, looking at the habitat that they put in, you can do it. Um, but it does require huge attention to detail. And that sort of attention to detail is, isn't for everyone. You know, not everybody wants to do it. And um, uh, for some people, you know, a, 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 a bag of 100 birds is not enough. They want to shoot a few more than that. So it isn't for everyone. But... Um, but it, it's catching on slowly. Uh, but I suspect it'll it'll be a slow slow thing. Well, I I, I for one hope that it does catch on, uh, and that um, more people have that long term vision, um, and are prepared to uh, to take that chance 
with their shoot because I think um, apart from the, the romance of wild English partridge shooting, I think it will do an awful lot for shooting as a whole to see people uh, producing the kind of results that you have produced, um, but with a view on having a shoot rather than doing it exclusively for conservation. Um, I think that's incredibly important. I would go so far as to say, George, that um, once you've done it a few times, you'll never want to shoot a reared red leg ever again. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I can well it's, imagine it's that. very, very different. I mean, a good day of shooting greys, is, it's, it's better than grouse shooting, it really is. It is absolutely enormous fun. Very, very exciting. Yeah. Oh, good. I feel like we need to leave it there. I could, I could honestly go on talking for hours, and I want your opinion on farming and and how on earth this is going to happen in the future but it it will go on forever uh but it's so good to hear that you've managed to do it you're showing it's possible you've even suggested you're happy to talk to people who want to give it a go themselves which is awesome to hear because you know that knowledge that you've earned since 2017 of doing this is just vital to be shared with others and obviously Mm. the gwct are bigger doing that as well but um it's been fascinating uh yeah listening to to what you've got to say about this um so um but before we go we finish these pods in uh the same style every time and i think i know where this one might be going but it's uh it's our section could be called desert island shooting so you've got one last day um so you're not going to be able to shoot beyond tomorrow let's assume we're in the season and we want to know where are you going to go who would you have with you what would you be doing time is not an issue uh well apart from the fact you've got to sort of fit it into a day but time travel is not an issue uh, money's no object give us the lowdown what what would you do in that scenario okay well um as probably will come as no surprise to you, I, I, I want a day of shooting wild English partridges. Uh, but I want to go back in time. I okay, want to, go, is, back, yeah. I want to go back to when they were at their very best about 100 years ago. Yeah. And I want to go to the early 1920s. Yeah. And I want to go to a place called the Grange at Alsford, which okay. I gather was one of the best, if not the best, partridge shoot at that time. Alsford is? In Hampshire. Hampshire. Okay. About- 20 minutes from my and, front door, just, Chris. Just, so, but you're failing miserably at Grey's, though, George. So, <laughs> well, we ha- we you have, can you they, be said they, to have failed if you haven't tried yet? <laughs> okay, okay, I'll let you off. <laughs> so, sorry, George Ponsonby, you're you're going to Allsford in Hampshire. So, and, and, and just by way of introduction, I just allude very briefly to to a couple of books. I've got a small collection of books about Grey Partridges, and um, they I've got about a dozen of them. They're all written about a hundred years ago or more. And my two favourites are one, which is a small book. It's called The Management of a Partridge Beat by Arthur Hipgrave. And Arthur Hipgrave was a, was a gamekeeper in the early 1900s. And he worked on an estate near Winchester where he and his boss, who shared this great fascination and passion of the partridges, that between them they built up this shoot from nothing and they, uh, in next to no time, were producing some absolutely fabulous sport. And then poor Arthur had to go and fight in the war. And, uh, but rather amazingly and miraculously, he came back uh, in one piece and returned to work for the same chap for a, for a couple of years. And then he landed what was probably the top job at the time. He got the job as head keeper at the Grange at Alsford. And um, 
that's where I'd like to go for my day's partridge shooting. And the other book that just I'd like to briefly uh, mention is called is is a, a rather larger book and is a um, is is a wonderful book if you want to, to learn about partridges. It's called the it's called Partridges and Partridge Manners by Emma Maxwell, and it's full of uh, lovely stuff. But towards the end, Emma Maxwell does rather what I'm doing now. He imagines mm-hmm. and describes beautifully uh, the perfect days shooting and he's describing how a young man is invited to stay in a shooting uh, party and uh, he goes there the night before lovely dinner time for a couple of rubbers of bridge and then everybody goes to bed early to get a good night's skip before the big day and the following morning he wakes up <clears throat> and uh, he can smell the smell of a cooked breakfast is coming wafting up the stairs and uh, somebody's getting some sausages and fried eggs ready and so he leaps out of bed, he goes down to the kennels, he gets his dog out, gives it a run, and gives it something to eat, pops it in the back of his car, goes in and has a huge breakfast. He's a young man and everybody else are uh, much older, um, seasoned veterans of the partridge world. And, and then out he goes and he has this wonderful day shooting, which he describes beautifully, which I won't be able to describe anything like as well, but that's the sort of day I've got in mind. And it's going to be um, probably late September. It's going to be a lovely autumn day. Um, there's going to be a plenty of warmth in the autumn sun. There's been a bit of early morning mist, which has burnt off. There's a bit of a breeze, which is uh, just enough of a breeze to sort of spice up the sport, but not too much of a breeze for the uh, to make life difficult for the beaters and flankers. And... Uh, Everywhere, as we as we get to the first drive, everywhere you look would be stubble, because that's what it was in those days. And I'm not familiar enough with the farming practices exactly at that time, but everything would have been harvested in sheaves and stoops in those days. But we'll, for the sake of this exercise, we will imagine that all is safely gathered in. And as I walk to my peg at the first drive, I'm going to have, by the way, I'm going to have with me all five Labradors that I've had in my... Lifetime. Oh, that's all going to be raised in the grave. So I'm going to have. I got the two that I got with me now, but I'm also going to have Teal, and Bonnie, and Rosie, and then I'm going to have Otter and Waffle, who are still with me now. Four black labs and and one yellow lab, and they're going to be trotting along, at heel behind me. Um, We will be um, shooting six guns, of course, because in those days there's nothing so vulgar as eight or nine, <laughs> uh, but we will be shooting double guns. And so I'd like Arthur Hipgrave to be my loader for the day because I want to, when we're not busy shooting, I want to chat and pick his brains about, um, you know, how to trap that stubborn rat and the crafty crow and that sort of thing. And uh, everywhere you look, everybody in those days, you know, you would be seeing everybody would be dressed in very smart tweed. There wouldn't be a, a green welly or a, green waterproof coat to be seen. It would be tweed everywhere. And uh, way in the distance, I'd see those those uh, pickers up and uh, they'd be just just uh, having a bit of a chat and then heading off to their chosen spot for the first drive. They would notice, of course, that I've got five dogs and uh, they would leave me well alone. Any of my birds that have crawled <laughs> around my peg, they'd leave those for me to pick up. And uh, I'll get to my peg and there will be Arthur getting my guns ready and, uh, and then he'll hand me that uh, 
the first gun and then we will stand and chat for a few minutes and there'll be that buzz of excitement in the air. And then, uh, so we'd be about 25 yards back from a high hedge and the other side of the hedge, you won't be able to see what's going on, obviously, because the hedge is too tall, but the other side of the hedge are an absolute veteran team of complete pros who, <laughs> whose job is uh, um, is to provide that tremendous day of sport. Arthur, of course, is well supported by at least two extremely professional and experienced beat keepers, so he's quite happy to delegate the running of the day to them. And before long, we sense, you know, that something's just about to happen, and sure enough, those beaters closest to the line of guns will start blowing their whistles. And you'll hear this beep, 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 and then you quick thumb on that safety catch, and before long, over that hedge bursts a covey of 15 greys heading straight towards you. And then if you're, of course, just for this one day, for the first, the only time in my life I'm going to shoot quite well, and um, <laughs> we'll be, uh, be able to take two out in front, but bang, bang. Quick change with Arthur, bang, bang behind, four out of that first cubby. And <laughs> and the dogs, of course, will be uh, behaving impeccably on this perfect day. And they won't move a muscle, but they'll be sniffing and they'll be wagging their tails and they'll be marking all the birds and knowing exactly what's going on. And so that's how the day is going to carry on. It's going to be a day of, of what we would call good old-fashioned sport, of high excitement, very testing, challenging birds. And if I could just just briefly explain, as I think they used to do in those days, the whistles are, or the men doing the whistling, and it's a very, very important part of the day, and it's, it's actually a little bit more refined than you would would realise. So if you get, if there's a covey coming your way, you'll get a longer blast, so they'd be more like beep, 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 that means covey coming. Whereas if it's a barren pair or a single bird, it'll be short blast, it'll go beep, 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 and then you know Arthur will be saying to a quick baron pet, baron pet coming. And then I think Tarquin alluded to this briefly when, when he was talking to you, but it's so important to take out those baron pairs and those single birds. Those are the ones that uh, are doing nothing for the long-term benefit of the shoot because the partridges, the older partridges, are real bullies and mm. they will shoo away a shyer bird when it comes to uh, you know choosing nesting cover. And it's those bossy little infertile ones that you you need to cull and that's uh, i mean it sounds a bit harsh but it's absolutely true and and the the, the population of partridges will be a lot better is a lot better if you've had a, a gentle cull and so that's why in those days that's what they would have done they you'd get that, that short beep, 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 beep means right really pay attention because you've probably got a single bird coming or a barren pair and you need to cull them so that's, uh, that's our, our day. And I don't suppose they had otter head in those days, but it would been jolly nice, you know, when we had our lunch outside, have a cool glass of beer. Oh, you can have otter head because it's, it's yeah, time travel. Shooting, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but there you go. So we'll have a lo lovely cool glass of otter head. And then, um, so that's, uh, it's going to be the most uh, wonderful day of sport. Um, and um, as I said, I've got all five of my dogs. Um, I've got one request as a guest. I'd like, so six guns. So I'd like Joe Nickerson to come, who was, who was the great guru of the sort of 50s and 60s. Very, very knowledgeable and immensely successful man in, in many ways, but, but amongst other things, great partridges. And I'd love him to come as, as one of our fellow guns. The others have just be four, four great mates. Um, and so that's, that's my, my perfect day of sport. Um, if there's time... 
I would like to get in my car at the end of the day, drive very fast to the Peak District, and I would like to fish the evening rise <laughs> on a small trout river in the um, in the upper reaches of the, of the Peak District, uh, if if I possibly can. So. Um, there is. You, there, there you, is can have, you can that, have you can have use of the guns on pegs helicopter for that. Okay, well let's do that, and let's just finish it off with. Uh, um, I, I, I fish the River Dove quite often up in the Peak District, but the on the on the Oakover Estate, which is which is a lovely stretch of water, but further upstream, where the river is much smaller, there's a tucked away in a very wild, beautiful spot is um, is is a, is is the, is the same river smaller stunning bit of countryside all wild fish and uh, it, whenever i fish there it's always the best day i have all season and if we could finish off the day with with half a dozen uh three quarter pound brownies that, that that would just that would just that would be the icing on the cake <laughs> that's brilliant i love how much thought's got into that that's yeah. perfect and 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 george brown uh got to be our first guest who's brought all his previous dogs back definitely to life for that day. i feel i feel quite nostalgic I mean, for something yeah. that i've not experienced you, um a very very evocative picture you've painted there i love it really nice well i would urge you to read the parrot the, the chapter in the in Ama maxwell's book because it's a great deal better than that i can assure you oh i shall <laughs> i shall be looking up a copy for certain um, especially hearing that it was all around winchester where i am so um yeah yeah we're going to be looking into that Mm. Well, George, it, I mean, honestly, we could have gone on for hours. Um, I've absolutely loved listening to you speak. Yeah, absolutely. It's been fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, George. Brilliant. It's been a pleasure. Come and see us. Come down yes. and, and, uh, anytime you like. But June is great for looking at insects. September is great for looking at coveys. Um, and uh, just, you know, just get in touch. I'd love to see you. I've got a plan. I'm going to drop you a message. Great. Great. <laughs> Lovely Good. to chat. Yeah, thank you. Right. As per usual, before we go, there is one final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve or by sharing your unpopular opinions or letting us know about a forgotten drive that you would like to see resurrected. Just drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com and if we read it out in the next episode or any future episode, we will send you some garters. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time, but until then, thanks very much for listening. And goodbye. Wow.